All right, welcome everyone. This is Jeremy Whitbeck, a partner of Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, and I have with us Jeff Powell, our managing partner and chief investment officer. Jeff, feels like it's uh, been a long time since we last spoke. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good to be back on. Yeah, so uh, today uh, is going to be a, a fun day. Um, we're going to change it up a little bit and go over some of the technical terminology that I think you and I take for granted, um, just having an understanding. Uh, and so this is something that you'd mentioned would be a fun idea. And uh, I'm looking forward to just going through some of the terms that we use and really what the meaning is and why it's used the way that it is in investing. And uh, I know this is one of those topics that can be a little bit dry, certainly not something that everyone's probably chomping at the bit hearing that description. And so what we're going to do is we're going to toss in some more serious words, um, a little bit more technical with some of the more fun words that are thrown around or expressions to really get a feel for uh, what people really mean when they say certain things. So on that note, uh, we're gonna start off with a little bit of uh, the more serious side and then we'll just kind of weave in um, every other uh, term, some of the more fun expressions that are, uh, that are stated. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, start off with the one that you hear a lot about, which is standard deviation. So what is standard deviation? Well, standard deviation is a mathematical term. Uh, and when you're looking at standard deviation, what you're really trying to determine is the predictability of the return of the investment that you're dealing with. So, um, you know, if we're gonna be teaching a math class, um, what you wanna do is look at a bell curve and draw a line right through the middle of the bell curve. And 68% uh, of the uh, one standard deviation uh, within it is is found there. So when you're looking again at, at having higher standard deviations or lower standard deviations, what percent falls within that first standard deviation is really what they're asking you for. So um, if you're a you know a 16 standard deviation and a zero percent return, you're saying okay, well uh, you've got a you know within one standard deviation, you're either going to lose 16 percent or make 16 percent. Better way of kind of describing it to me, you know, and again, you can go out to standard deviations, and that's capturing 96% of the uh, of the probabilities of, of where you're going to fall into to things and so on. But and again, the higher that number is, that standard deviation number, the higher, the harder it is to predict. So, imagine again, as a fund manager, your average return is 10%, and your standard deviation is 30. It means that within a 68% probability, you're either going to be a 40% return or a negative 20, somewhere in that range. If somebody had a standard deviation of five, on the other hand, and with a 10% return, they're a lot more predictable. And so again, if you're looking at it in that kind of context, 10% return, you know that within a 68% probability that you're gonna either be 15 or down as low as five. So more predictability and so on. But the analogy that I kind of try to throw out is, you know, again, we love using driving analogies. So imagine driving on the highway going 100 miles per hour, and you turn your steering wheel maybe just an inch or so to the right or left, you might drive off the highway. If you're going 20 miles per hour and you move that steering wheel an inch on either side, you may even change lanes. So the faster that the portfolio is, the higher the, the standard deviation, the more the variance is of the end result of what you're trying to predict, which means that it's harder to predict it, which means that it's harder to hit your target financially when having a higher standard deviation investment. Jeff, that's a great explanation. So thank you so much for uh, going through that. So here's uh, one that's actually very timely, uh, given that uh, we're in the month of January, and that is the January effect. What does that mean? What are people referring to when they say that? Well, again, what, what people do in the financial industry is they try to uh, 
to create biases based upon what's been working. So the January effect is kind of a as a as January uh, goes, so does the rest of the year. Um, what we've found is that yeah, there there have been uh, you know a, a substantial amount of time that when January was positive, so was the rest of the year. But when you really kind of break it down and you look at the market, when the markets are up, you know historically 70% of the time, and you say, oh well, your January is up, therefore the rest of the, it's more than a flip of the coin. So the January effect is not really a, a great way of viewing the market. So the fact that we're up so far the beginning of January, and if we were to finish off January, it's by no means a guarantee that February through December are going to be up as well. Uh, but that's what you know when people are referring to the January effect and they're trying to do, they're trying to equate uh, a um, a correlation between January and February through December when there really isn't much of one. Yeah, well, and looking back at last year, I think last year is a great example of that, where if we use the January results in 2019, right, February and March should have been awesome. And with the pandemic, they were anything but. And so to your point, uh, yeah, I think uh, sometimes we stretch to make connections there that aren't necessarily there. So flipping back on the more technical side and a little bit related to standard deviation, and that is beta. So what is beta? So beta is a correlation calculation. So again, going back to math class here for a moment, uh, a beta of one means that if the markets were going up one, your investment should be going up one. You can either do it on investments, you can do it on your entire portfolio by doing a, a weighted average, which is something that we do quite a bit. So uh, when you have a, a beta above one, you when the markets are going up, it should be going up more. Uh, if a beta of less than one, then it should be going down with it. You can have negative beta and you can also have zero beta, meaning that there is no correlation to the market or it's negatively correlated. So if the markets are going up, that investment's gonna be going down. It's just not gonna be going up as much, which is where, again, the below one mark. So what we use beta for really is, is an understanding of the risk within our portfolio on a weighted average. So imagine that you had all your investments that you had in your portfolio had two betas. So that means that again, the market's up 1%, you're up 2%. But let's say that we wanted to take, and you know, not very many of our clients have 100% of their equity or have 100% of their money in equities. A few do, but not all. But imagine we're you know, in a balanced situation. We wanna be 70% stock, 30% bonds, but we've got this portfolio that looks like this. Okay, we go out and buy 70% of the portfolio in stocks, but the beta is two. Well, that's gonna feel like a 140% investment in stocks. So you could actually lower your exposure to the stock market down to 35% with a two beta portfolio and have the same price movement as if you had gone out and bought a bunch of one beta. So again, that's a bit of an extreme, but it's a way for us when we're putting together and looking at our portfolio, if we've gotten defensive, so again, our growth and income strategy, which is typically a 60-40 split, if we're sitting 60-40, is it getting the price movement of a 60-40 portfolio or is it more or less? Because we need to understand that because if, again, if we're sitting there with 60% and then we have a bunch of high beta stock in there, it's going to feel like a whole lot more exposure to the stock market than it would otherwise. Yeah, Jeff, thank you again for another excellent uh, explanation. I think the other part that I would add to that is that when you have a properly diversified portfolio, when it's constructed properly, beta actually starts to become a much better risk measurement tool than even standard deviation. 
because of course you get the zig and the zag with the individual holdings and their standard deviation and how it all comes together right beta does the best job of measuring that and really helps you understand that if the market goes up x amount or down x amount what's going to be your overall impact so once again great great answer or great uh explanation on how that works the next one is sell in may and go away it's kind of building on the january effect another one of those rules that we sometimes throw out there yeah so uh it almost is self-explanatory sell in may and go away so it's saying to you that you know come may 1st the markets are really not going to perform you should sell and leave your portfolio behind and, and not invest in it anymore uh the problem with that and so basically what it's saying is that may through october uh are the worst months of the year november through april are the best to, uh, places to be investing and oftentimes it also will go uh you know may through september that will capture five months but if you were going to look at six months here or there there have been far too many great may through octobers we you and i were just talking about the fact of imagine if you had gone ahead and sold in may of 2020 you'd have missed out on a significant portion of the run-up in the marketplace. You would have taken your beating and, uh, you know, with owning the, the market in February and March, uh, it was recovering in April, and then you would have said, eh, I'm out of here. Uh, I'll see you in six months, and I'll be investing back on November 1st. Just not a wise way of doing it. Um, and looking back, you know, again, uh, we just mentioned the, the 2020 market, but uh, I'm looking at other uh, years, I mean, uh, 2017 up 8% from May and October versus uh, 2.8 for the eight, November through April. Uh, 2014 was the same way. 2013 was the same way. Uh, it's oh, there historically from the 50s to present, uh, you would have made a lot more money in the November through April time period. But again, as much as I'd like to be on a six-month vacation, it's really not a great way of of using. Um, a strategy uh, with your portfolio yeah and jeff i actually had someone bring this up to me uh, fairly recently and uh i i definitely understand where this uh, comes from when you look at data that goes back say 80 years i looked at it over the last 10 years and what i found is that it actually doesn't really seem to work anymore and i don't know if it's just because the sample size is smaller or because everyone kind of figured this out, which is what tends to happen with these kind of rules. And when everyone figures it out, they don't work anymore. But something that, uh, to your point, if you had tried to employ a strategy like that, you probably would uh, have missed a lot of what has been some of the best returning months in the stock market as of late. All right, so flipping back to the uh, more technical side, and this is one that uh, you definitely hear a lot of active managers talk about, and that's alpha. Jeff, what is alpha? Well, alpha is, is the value that's brought to the table in portfolio management. So uh, oftentimes clients uh, will confuse uh, a, a total return with what alpha is. So for example, um, Jeremy, if, if Polaris provided a 12% return and the S&P 500 was up 10%, did we do a good job? It depends. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a trick question. Now, okay, so let's say that Polaris took twice as much risk as the stock market to get a 12% return, and the S&P 500 was up 10. Yeah, and we did not job, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we took far too much risk in order to get a little bit extra return. Just like you can sit there and say, okay, well, the markets were up nine, or say they were up 10 again, and we were up nine, 
But again, if we took half the risk of the stock market and we captured 90% of the return, then we did an excellent job. And so that's where alpha calculations come in. It's a risk-adjusted performance. It's saying, how, I mean, did you bring value or did you not bring value to the table with the risk that you were taking? And so again, not an easy calculation for the average person to go out and do themselves, uh, but it's one that they should be definitely asking about because what they should understand is where, you know, is this person bringing value to the table or not? And if they're not, then perhaps they should index, which we've talked about in days past. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so this is one that uh, may be a little bit more difficult to, to um, explain why it's set, but it's one that I know a lot of our technical traders have heard before, and that is a dead cat balance. So what is a dead cat balance? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, how horrid of a comment, right? I mean, when you really kind of think about the, the real statement behind it, um, last year, uh, one of the things I was worried about was dead cat bounces. So uh, what a dead cat bounce is, is a, a sizable drop in the market. And then you have a rally, uh, which is the bounce part of this. And then you have a further deterioration and you have the markets go down even further than they were before. So when we bottomed out in February and March, uh, you know, March 24th, I believe was the exact bottom, um, or maybe it was a day beforehand. Um, but anyway, back in, you know, the, in March when the markets bottomed out, we started to see a big rally. And we talked about this in, in a lot of our educational pieces that 70% of the time when you have a watershed type of event, the markets rally and then they fall off and they go even lower than where they were before. And that's what a dead cat bounce is, basically. It's, it's uh, again, a big drop. It bounces up and goes down even further. Uh, but again, uh, I, I really want to research how it came up with the name that it did, because it's really, when you think about it, logistically, quite a gross description. Yeah, when it tells you a lot about the way that uh, investment traders' minds work. I don't know if that's uh, <laughs> something that uh, we should be proud of, but uh, it's certainly a, an expression that you hear a lot. Uh, Jeff, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, throw one other uh, more technical term, and it certainly relates uh, to the alpha conversation that we had, um, and that is up capture ratio and down capture ratio. So what is it that that's trying to explain? Um, what you're really looking at with up capture and down capture is, you know, again, it's it's a having your cake and eat it too situation. As a tactical manager, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is to provide downside protection. Uh, and so when you're looking at, at downside capture, how much are we protecting a portfolio to the downside of the market? Um, and then the upside capture is, are we you know, having our cake and eat it too? Are we actually able to outperform the markets when they're rebounding? Now, again, if you could limit yourself to half the downside and 80% of the upside, long-term you're gonna win and win in a very, very big way. The problem becomes is how, when you do have an extended up period, and you're only capturing 80% of it, then eventually the markets will capture back, a uh, catch back up to you. So, talking about having you know 50% downside, 80% upside is a great conversation piece. Uh, but in a bull market, you really want to be greedy and have more than that. So, when you're looking at a portfolio manager, it's really kind of describing to you: uh, is their tactical nature working for them? I liked your point about the uh, the 80% too, because that's been kind of the holy grail. If you could get 50% downside, 80% upside, right? That's one that I know a lot of models are built trying to achieve. And to your point, right? We just went on another extended bull market run from really 2009 through today. And if you only captured 80% of that, 
any of that 50% that you mitigated on the downside has probably more than been caught up by the market. And so um, one of the things I would, I'd stress and to your point is that for tactical managers, you also have to be uh, nimble and adaptive and recognize when things change, you want to change a little bit. And I would argue that uh, our strategies have done a very good job of doing just that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pick on myself a little bit, and I'm sure I'm not the only one guilty, um, but I use this phrase a lot because I think it's one that really well explains human behavior and just how in emotions and uh, internal biases can get the best of you, and that is that bull markets climb a wall of worry. So what does uh, that saying mean? Well, if you look at the markets and you look at the historical nature of, of what goes on in any given year, there's always a reason for you not to invest in the stock market. You know, so really, I mean, we talk about equal opportunity warriors. We talk about all sorts of things where, you know, again, people panic when the markets are dropping. And then when they start going back up, then people are like, oh my gosh, well, now it's gone up a lot. It, it has to correct again. So if you look at any given year in the stock market, there's probably four or five reasons why you shouldn't have invested during that market, but yet still the markets go up. So it's just saying, hey, you know, bull markets, you know, and again, the average secular bull market lasts 14 years. The last one we had was from 1982 to 2000. Okay, these are long time time periods. There are cycles within these time periods as well, and you're gonna have bulls and bears there too. So it doesn't mean that the markets have to go straight up, but you had the same thing going on in the 80s and 90s where people were like, oh my gosh, how much further can this go up? Well, it was up almost 2,200% during that time period. Million dollar investment would have turned into over $22 million uh, in total investments with dividend reinvestment and so on. Um, why would you not want to be a part of that? Now, the, the last one was an 18 year time period. Like I said, the average is 14. Um, so one of the things that we keep on trying to caution clients about with this whole bull markets climb a wall of worry is that we started our secular bull market in 2013. If we just have an average time period for our secular bull market, you know, 14 plus 13 is 27. That puts us out into uh, the midway part of the uh, the year. And so if we're looking at it in that kind of context, we really need to be looking at it and understanding that there's a lot longer way for this to go um, and not to sit there and feed into, uh, you know, the, the things that go bump in the dark and worry about, is that gonna have a negative impact? And is that not gonna be something and we're going to actually be able to, to withstand for a market continuing to move up. So it's more of a trying to temper someone's um, uh, emotions. I mean, again, we, we've talked many times before about how the average person allows emotions to be the dictating factor with how they manage money. It's really trying to quell that and say, hey, you know, Jeremy, uh, well, markets climb a wall of worry. It's okay to worry, but it doesn't mean that the markets aren't still going to go up. So be cautious, understand it, but let us do our job, we'll navigate it for you. And to your point, Jeff, I can think of a hundred different reasons on why people wouldn't have wanted to be invested just about any given year. And yet here we are where the market keeps uh, compounding in that eight to 10% range, the economy keeps growing. And to your point, I mean, I think sometimes we're our own worst enemy when it comes to uh, being a stumbling block and not participating in what's been one of the greatest economies in the world through the, I mean, through any recorded history that we have. And so that saying definitely is trying to help us recognize that we don't want to let emotion get in the way of us being successful. 
So I think that's uh, about all the time that we have. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. So what I'd like to do, Jeff, is uh, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll stop here and our audience can look forward to a part two where we'll go through a few other uh, uh, terms and uh, hear your uh, insights and explanations as to what they mean and how we can better understand the conversations when those uh, phrases are used. So Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, to our audience, as always, be happy, be safe, and be healthy. Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.